Hi, this is Danny Levine. From time to time, we get asked about our theme music, which is borrowed from the Jonah Levine Collective. Attention Deficit, the debut album from the band, will be released Friday, March 17th. It's available at iTunes, Amazon, Google, and other online music retailers. Stay tuned after this week's podcast to hear the debut single. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The Personalized Medicine Coalition recently issued its 2017 report on the opportunities and challenges for the industry. Chris Wells, Communications Director for the organization, will be kicking off the fourth annual Business of Personalized Medicine Summit in South San Francisco, March 28th, drawing from the new report to discuss trends and the pace of advances. We spoke to Wells about the state of personalized medicine, the obstacles to greater clinical adoption, and what the growing legislative battles in Washington will mean for the industry. Chris, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Danny. I appreciate it. You'll be delivering the kickoff at the upcoming fourth annual Business of Personalized Medicine Summit in South San Francisco, March 28th. This comes on the heels of the Personalized Medicine Coalition releasing its new report on the state of personalized medicine and the opportunity and challenges for it. I'd like to start with a question of terminology. It seems that precision medicine has become the preferred term these days, but do you see there being something fundamentally different in meaning between the term precision medicine and personalized medicine? Uh, Nope. Actually, uh, personalized precision medicine or individualized medicine Regardless of what it's called, um, we we note that it's the technology that's really driving the definition. Essentially, we have new tools that allow us to be more precise in uh, prescribing and dosing medications, finding the right medications for each patient. Regardless of what you call it, that is uh, the uh, the field that we're talking about here. Now, I'll mention just briefly that the reason the Personalized Medicine Coalition is called what it's called is because we've done some studies on the preferred terms um, for patients, the, the terms that patients uh, prefer for this uh, field. And many of them said personalized, felt uh, that it resonated a bit more with them. Of course, all of this was before President Obama, then President Obama, announced uh, the Precision Medicine Initiative which sort of steered the field uh, in the other direction, and now many people call it precision medicine. But, but again, regardless of what it's called, um, the field, per precision medicine, personalized medicine, and individualized medicine, they are one and the same. I think many people feel that it's been a, a slow progression, but where do you see us today? Is this something that's seeped into distinct areas of medicine, or is there evidence of a broader systemic integration of personalized medicine today? I think there's certainly evidence that personalized medicine has taken root um, in a variety of different disease states. Um, For starters, I would point to the fact that the Tufts University 
uh, Center for Drug Development, their most recent statistics suggest that more than 40% of all drugs in development uh, are associated with biomarker strategies. And that is notable because uh, this is not only oncology or uh, only rare disease or anything like that. This is all drugs in development are personalized medicines. 42% is the exact number. So I would, I would point to that. Um, and I would also point to some uh, recent approvals in, in fields like cystic fibrosis and places where new genetic drivers ha have enabled uh, personalized medicine approvals that really transform care. So we're really starting to see this uh, being being uh, more than just in, in oncology, for example, but, but more broad. Well, there are a number of trends that are helping drive a move towards personalized medicine. The falling coast of genome sequencing, the ability to capture real-world data through digital health devices, and, and the emergence of new biomarkers. How much of a problem is clinical validation of these various new information streams, and, and what needs to be done to convince providers, payers, or, or regulators of their clinical utility? Well, so the uh, the primary challenges uh, in that space are are actually around the economic utility we essentially at the Personalized Medicine Con uh, Coalition uh, contend two things. Number one is that personalized medicine makes patients healthier. And obviously, uh, FDA and, and other groups have pretty established ways to demonstrate that. Um, but the challenge in many cases, especially for providers or payers, for example, is that we need to also be able to demonstrate that personalized medicine can and does uh, make the healthcare more system more efficient. And although the evidence in this area is still developing, there are some examples uh, of, of where uh, evidence suggesting that this can happen. For example, you have um, a study from Intermountain Healthcare that was published, I believe, in 2015, essentially demonstrated that using personalized medicines in a cohort of 36 cancer patients had decreased costs while improving health outcomes. And I think that's the kind of data, that's the kind of information that we're going to have to have in order to make uh, personalized medicine a common sense, no-brainer kind of uh, uh, field where it's, you know, you really got to be on board with it. Well, let's walk a little deeper through some of the key players and tell me where you think they are right now with regards to personalized medicine. Let's start with doctors. What's the, the state of clinical adoption and what has to be done to increase that? Yeah, so the, the state of clinical adoption is certainly lagging behind uh, the the uh, pace of innovation. Uh, most recent uh, studies suggest that about 11% of patients say that their doctors have discussed personalized medicine with them. Uh, so we're still seeing some lag there. Um, doctors, uh, in large part, are, are looking for evidence, again, demonstrating the value, and they're also waiting, you know, the, the pro providers as a, as a system themselves uh, are still looking for the evidence to kind of emerge and develop. So in large part, um, we are, we have work to do. However, I will point out that, um, you know, recently there's been a, a move toward clinical adoption, and I think that you have some examples, like I said, of, of groups like Intermountain Healthcare, uh, Mission Health, uh, and, and a variety of others that are able to tap into personalized medicine often through partnerships. And I think that's a key point when it comes to clinical adoption. Uh, we have a, a couple groups at the, um, the 
Business of Personalized Medicine Summit that are going to come talk about how partnerships are making things possible. You know, groups like N of One uh, will will be represented at the Business of Personalized Medicine Summit, and also um, health information technology uh, groups like SIAPS are are starting to give doctors the tools that they need at the point of care to actually deliver uh, personalized medicine, which is another key challenge for doctors is they need to get the information sooner rather than later. And in many cases, that can be a challenge. How about regulators? There, there doesn't seem to be a problem getting targeted therapies approved, but what's the state with clarity on issues like biomarkers and diagnostics? Is there, is there a need to get new clarity from FDA on these types of issues? Yeah, you're certainly right. Um, on the therapeutic side, we've actually seen a, a pretty impressive um, um, effort by FDA. Uh, about the most recent data are that about 90% of personalized medicines are approved based on expedited pathways. And in 2016, about 20% of all new molecular entities um, FDA approved were personalized. So we're seeing a steady uptick there. That 27% number compares to only 5% in 2005. So we're seeing good progress. Where I think things have been a challenge is more on the diagnostic side. And that's uh, in large part because we have um, technologies like next generation sequencing, which FDA doesn't have, uh, 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 has not historically um, developed paradigms in which they can evaluate a diagnostics ability to target, you know, multiple d- uh, drugs, for example, and 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 analyze uh, information that much information at one time, you know, looking across. Um, multiple places on the genome for multiple markers. And so as a result of that, um, FDA is still working through some challenges in in that area. Um, But I will say that they've been very proactive in this space and have published a draft guidance on next generation sequencing to help you know, move in the direction of clarity there and also has published, as we know, plenty of draft guidance uh, information on laboratory-developed tests. So FDA is, is working through a, a very real challenge on the diagnostic side, and, and they're doing it in partnership w- uh, with industry stakeholders. Well, we're certainly seeing dramatic cost reductions in next-generation sequencing. What's it going to take for payers to embrace the technology? And, and do you see us moving away from one-off gene tests to more comprehensive screens of patients? Yeah, certainly, I do. I do see that move um, in the future. But in order to get there again, um, I think that what's going to be key is to find uh, and develop uh, economic utility data. Um, that's really the key to getting um, payers and other groups to to say, yes, this makes sense. We can clearly see the value in this. Um, again, because the contention that personalized medicine will make the healthcare system more efficient. Um, is largely, uh, uh, you know, still developing. The evidence in that area is still developing. PMC is actually doing some work in this area as well. Later this year, we're going to launch, um, we're going to announce and, and launch the results of some of a study on clinical and economic uh, utility of next generation sequencing, because we think that that kind of evidence generation is still the key challenge um, in, when it comes to next generation sequencing in practice. We have to be able to definitively prove the contentions that we have. It shows a lot of promise, but there's, um, you know, the field is still working through uh, the evidence generation. Well, what, what are the reimbursement challenges the, the industry faces that may be slowing adoption more generally? Well, the challenges overall on the reimbursement front are, are largely a result of the fact that 
different payers often have different ideas of what reimbursement, uh, what kinds of evidence are going to be necessary to secure reimbursement. So you're kind of shooting it at a moving target. I'm reminded at the personalized medicine conference in last year, uh, somebody said it's not that you don't know what the rules of the game are, it's that there are no rules because all payers kind of have a different idea of what that evidence should look like. So industry in large part um, faces a challenge in trying to um, hit hit a, a dynamic target in terms of evidence uh, uh, generation there. The legislative front is heating up, and there's already been some significant pieces that have recently passed. I'd like to get your thoughts on what they might mean for personalized medicine and, and what fights may be ahead. We, we had the 21st Century Cures Act pass. I know the authors like to talk about personalized and precision medicine, but is there any sense as to what this legislation does in terms of advancing the cause of personalized medicine? Well, I will say a couple different points. Number one, I'd make the point that um, personalized medicine is, by definition, an innovative approach to medicine. And the 21st Century Cures Act was designed to foster uh, and increase the pace of innovation. So at a broad level, it helps. Now, deeper into the into the content of the 21st century cures, um, we, of course, are looking to see whether efforts like the Precision Medicine Initiative and the Cancer Moonshot effort are going to survive the change in administration. And we are fortunate that in the 21st Century Cures Act, you do have some uh, some funding uh, approved there. Again, that funding, as many have pointed out, still has to be appropriated, but it's a positive step. Um, we think that in general, um, improving health care for patients and making our health system more efficient is not a partisan issue. And for that reason, we are optimistic and hope that Congress will continue its bipartisan efforts on this topic. Drug pricing fights have been heating up. Personalized therapies tend to be expensive, as will emerging cell and gene therapies that hold great promise and the potential for cures. Where does personalized medicine fall within the battles over drug pricing and do you see this posing any threat to its expanded application? You know, I think personalized medicine is sort of right at the center of that conversation, again, because as we have for a long time contended, um, we believe that guiding therapy uh, to the right patients, to only those patients who are going to benefit from it, is ultimately going to help us be more efficient and help us to reduce healthcare costs overall. So in general, um, we want to ensure that before we implement any sweeping measures, we consider the fact that that is the case, that we consider innovation in personalized medicine and think about what the value of that is. And uh, we continue to look for that to become and uh, part of the dialogue as policymakers consider consider these proposals. And we're working toward that at PMC quite a bit. We're also approaching a new incarnation of the Prescription Drug User Fee Act and the Medical Device User Fee Act. These are laws that are up for renewal in 2017. In exchange for charging user fees, FDA provides a predictable timeline for action on marketing authorization. These bills, though, often become an opportunity for related challenges and changes to the drug and device landscape. Are there particular issues the personalized medicine industry is pushing for or against within this legislation? Largely, we focus on advocating for personalized medicine at a high level. We, what we ultimately want to see 
It's just that personalized medicine will become part of the dialogue and we will think about how each of our, because it's such a, an important part of uh, the healthcare paradigm and has so much potential, what we want is for all legislation, including, you know, the Prescription Drug User Fee Acts and the 21st Century Cures Act, to be considering personalized medicine throughout all of their conversations. And we largely focus on trying to interject um, our basic messages into that dialogue so that we think about it holistically. Of course, the fight over repeal and replacement of the Affordable Care Act is front and center right now. Where does personalized medicine fit into the proposed legislation, and has the industry taken any kind of a position on it? Well, in, in large part, uh, when it comes to that particular piece of legislation, we're looking to see how that may or may not affect access to personalized medicine. Um, we, we, again, are still analyzing the specifics, but in general, we want to see uh, patients get be covered in a way that gives them access to the latest uh, innovation. We believe that no patient should have to uh, get a different quality of care for reasons that are related to regulation and reimbursement. And we work every day to try to make sure that the bridge between the science and the patient is is there and that patients don't have to wait for that. And uh, again, we're still going to be analyzing the act, but we hope that, um, you know, that, 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 uh, that the act will support access to personalized medicine as opposed to inhibit it. In terms of the case for personalized medicine, the, the argument has long been that it's a way to improve care while cutting costs. There, there's an argument to make that patients get the right treatments without wasting time and money on ineffective therapies, but how robust a body of data is there today, and what's the case that needs to be made moving forward? Well, there we're starting to see more data proliferating is what, what I will say. There are some individual studies, for example, showing that in, in areas like uh, colorectal cancer, we can save uh, money um, by with with personalized medicine. Also in breast cancer, and especially in cardiology, uh, where we are able to you know dose uh, drugs like warfarin, blood thinners, based on genetic predisposition to metabolize the drug faster or slower. And we do have studies to point to to say that this can save money um, and and sometimes fairly substantial amounts of money. The challenge has been, I think, that what we have to be able to say is we have to be able to point to that at a systemic level, you know, that it's able to save money for health systems writ large, not just in one area, but in general, when you apply personalized medicine technologies. And that's the evidence that is still kind of emerging. And I think that's what it's going to take. And we're starting to see it. I mentioned before the Intermountain Healthcare Study, and I'd also like to mention that um, Penn Medicine is doing currently... Uh, working on studies that that are designed to answer that question, and we're seeing more and more of that um, from at PMC. Our healthcare provider organizations are starting to study how personalized medicine uh, can save uh, save money and 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 improve care at a systemic level, the level of a healthcare uh, system, as opposed to just in a one-off study of a, a particular product. Chris Wells, director of communications for the Personalized Medicine Coalition, who will be kicking off the Business of Personalized Medicine Summit in South San Francisco, March 28th. You can learn more at personalizedmedicinesummit.com. Chris, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you, Danny. As promised, we're going to end this week's podcast with False Alarm. 
the first track from the Jonah Levine Collective's debut album, Attention Deficit. You can order it now at iTunes, Amazon, Google, and other online music retailers. Enjoy, and thanks for listening.
Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.